Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Well, Brooke and I, like uh, many of you, are a sucker for a new Netflix series. And whatever it is, Netflix, Disney, Stan, Binge, Disney, what have I left out? Prime, whatever it is. We are a sucker for a series. And whenever we get a recommendation, we usually follow up on it within a week or two. And one of those recommendations, I think someone from here gave me this recommendation last week, Last Stop Larimer. Anyone seen this one? Last Stop Larimer. If you're gonna go home and watch it, language warning. Okay, language warning, you've heard it from me. I'm not actually up here recommending it. I'm just saying if you choose to go and watch it, language warning. Anyway, Larimer is a town in the Northern Territory that is like this quintessential Australian town. It's the sort of town that tourists, especially Americans, pay big bucks to fly over here and then drive for hours and hours to land in this town called Larimer. It has the two essentials that any quintessential Australian town needs, a pub and a pie shop. They're the two ingredients that you need to to qualify and Larimer has that. This, This town has a population of 11 people. 11 people. And right now you're thinking, how on earth did an Australian town in the middle of nowhere, literally in the middle of nowhere, no one stops there because the fuel means that you can drive right on through it. How did this little town of 11 people make it onto Netflix? And this is an American funded series as well. How on earth does this happen? Well, what you find out about this town, two things. The first thing is this town is quite beautiful. It's quite alluring. Like I watch it and I say, I wouldn't, I'd hate to live there, but I wouldn't mind visiting. I wouldn't mind going and spending some time in Laramie because it ticks all the boxes in terms of Australian towns. Americans think we all live like that, but no, only 11 people live like that. And so, and it has the, it has the ability to provide for you the experience of the Australian town. You can rock up and you can get your pie cooked by Fran. You can go to the pub and then have whatever you have at the pub, a Coke or something else. And you can have the experience and these people are, as you start to meet them, they are delightful characters. They're charming characters capable of doing that for people. But the reason this series, this this has been turned to a Netflix series, is because not that long ago, someone from Larimer went missing and is now presumed dead and not just dead, murdered. And so in this town, you get this dual reality of beauty and charm, the ability to provide really good things for other people, And then you get this dark, sinister, slanderous, jealous, envious town capable of murder. What lies beneath this lovable and quaint facade is actually quite dark and twisted. It's easy to judge these people as you watch the series unfold, but I came up, as, I, as I was looking at this passage and this event from the history of this recording the Bible, the history of David, I realised something, as much as I would like to judge, I realised Larimer is me. I am Larimer. You are Larimer. Larimer is, is one minute able to create moments of beauty and goodness, Australian experiences, good stuff. And then next minute, it becomes a sordid and shameful event worthy of a Netflix document, do- documentary. I am Larimer. One, one minute I'm able to bless and help others flourish. I hope I'm doing that now. And that's genuine, that's real. 
the next minute I become jealous. I become envious. I move to anger too easily and too quickly. I become bitter. Here's, here's the offensive truth of the story of the Bible. Larimer is in each of us. So say it with me. I am Larimer. David's life, the life of King David can be summed up in two big moments. And they are just that, they're moments. They're not like seasons. They're not like years. They're not like that sort of deal. They're, they're actual moments, like times within a set day. David's life can be summed up with two of these big events in his life. And, and these two big, big events show you that David also is Larimer. David is Larimer. The first event we looked at very briefly last week as we introed the baptism service, the story that I, met, I think many of us know, no matter how long or short we've been around church, even if we haven't been around church at all, David and Goliath. This is a good moment for David. This is a moment where the boy David, full of faith, goes out and destroys, every, destroys the thing that the whole Israelite army is, is quaking in their boots, desperately terrified over. David steps out as a boy and takes him out. That's a good moment for David. So that's the one moment on the left-hand side of his life, the good moment. And then the other moment is the one we're looking at today, David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. And as you probably can guess, because I'm assuming that most of you know both of those stories, it's a slippery slope between the two. How can someone like David stand as a boy stand before Goliath and have that moment of faith, that moment of courage, that moment of in, in, invincibility because of believing that God was for him? How can he slip so desperately down to do what he did around his lust for Bathsheba? Well, the, the, the short answer is David is Larimer. Let me read I've written here, let me read the highlights. Let me, let me read the story. There's no highlights in this story. But let me read from 1 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Just some of the, I'm not gonna read the whole lot, but just some things that help us or remind us of what this story is all about. Not this story, but this history. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her. She came to him and he slept with her. Just a few words, but there it is. There's the slippery slope. He slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Uriah again is Bathsheba's husband. This is David dealing with him. Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. 
when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is the word of the Lord. The way I wanna work through this passage is to look at each of the characters that are a part of this history. And I wonder as I do that, which character you will resonate with the most. As you, as you sit here this morning, which of these characters do you resonate with the most? And that will, I think, determine in a large part what God wants to say to you today. The first character is Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was a soldier. That's really obvious from the story. Um, there's a big chunk I left out of that passage just in the interest of time. But Uriah was a soldier battling with the army that David had sent to go to, go to war. So Uriah, faithful soldier, has gone off to battle. But there's more to Uriah than just this. If you, if you know the Bible story, there was a time before David was king where the then king, who knew that David had been anointed to become king, was trying to kill David, which is a pretty logical thing for a bad king to do. So he's after David, the whole force of the Israelite army under the king's orders are pursuing David through the wilderness. David has, he's obviously fleeing and he's running for his life, but he has a few really close friends. Some of you have friends like this who are with him, supporting him, sacrificing for him. They've walked away from their families, run away from their families, run away from their resources, run away from everything because they see something in David that is good. They see something in David that is anointed and they give their lives to love him and to support him. One of those men was Uriah the Hittite. So this, just, this wasn't just any old soldier. This was one of David's friends. More than that, this is one of David's close and intimate friends, a friend who had been with him in caves hiding from Saul. A friend who was willing, if, if the army came closer and closer, to stand in front of David and give his life to protect him. There would have been conversations. There would have been around, fire, around campfires and over meals, the meals that they could scratch together, deep connection between David and Uriah. This is also Uriah, from, we know from this story, is a man of integrity, a man of courage. We can see this in a bit of the story that I didn't read where David attempts what he first does to try and cover up his sin, to cover up the dark side that he slipped down to is he calls Uriah back from the war and tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. So he sets him up the first night, Uriah sleeps in the king's courts. The second, and David goes, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm not gonna go, and be home, go home and relax while my fellow soldiers are off fighting. I'm gonna sleep in the king's court and just stay on duty. 
This isn't a time to go home and be merry. This is a time to protect the king. So the second night, David thinks, all right, well, I'll get some alcohol into him because that usually works. So he gets him a bit merry, but still Uriah obviously doesn't drink enough to lose his senses, again, sleeps in the king's courts to protect him. Uriah is a man of integrity. He's a man of courage. David's trying to get him to sleep with his wife so that you can say, well, the baby's yours, it's not mine. You got her pregnant while you were back here from the war. So Uriah, this is is painting a bit of a picture of the man that Uriah was and therefore helping us to understand how insidious David's actions were to try and, and successfully get his friend to die in battle to cover up his own sin. Uriah was betrayed by a man in whom he recognised calling and goodness and dare we say it, godliness. Uriah lost his bride and then lost his life because of David's intent. I've been wondering a little bit about Uriah's final thoughts. This is reading between the lines of Scripture a little bit. There's no indication that Uriah ever clicked that David had conspired to make all this happen. And as I think about that, I wonder as Uriah is going into battle that day, he is questioning tactics. He's questioning Joab's tactics. He's going, why are you putting us so close to the walls? We're gonna get killed here. This was an experienced soldier who knew warfare. Why on earth am I here with my other soldiers? We're about to die. What is going on? But because he was so integral, so faithful, he, and, and, and so willing to fight for his king, he went where he was told. And with his dying breath, I wonder, I'm sure his mind went to Bathsheba, his beautiful bride. And he realised as arrows pierced his heart, I'm never gonna see her again. But I reckon there was some sense of honour in his heart as well as he went, I've died for my king. I've died for my king. And how profound and twisted that statement would have been. The insidious nature of sin that David would betray a friend like this to avoid exposure. As I said, some of us will resonate with this. We've been betrayed by friends. People who we've become friends with because of a mutual love for Jesus and a mutual dedication to His kingdom. But when it hit the fan, rather than being by our side, these friends have deserted us. They've betrayed us. Some of us can resonate with Uriah that someone else's sin has caused pain for us. The second character in this story is in this history is Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the victim in all of this. And in fact, she's a voiceless victim. The, the only record we have of her words that were sent via message, so written down, just three words, I am pregnant. And we, we, can, we can do all the culture work and, and get back into how irrelevant women were back then and all that sort of thing. But Bathsheba still had a soul. She had emotions. She had all of this stuff going on and she was raped by her king. She was sexually abused and exploited by one who should have known better. One who used his power over her to get her to do what he wanted in a moment. David never saw Bathsheba the person. 
He wasn't interested in her character. He wasn't interested in who she was, what her story was, what her experiences had been. He's up on the roof, he sees her naked and wants her and because he's king, he gets her. Completely exploiting Bathsheba who became the object of his lust. I wonder how Bathsheba lived the rest of her life. I wonder if there was ever a moment where she forgot. I, 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 I don't think she would ever have said, man, my, lines have fall, my, my boundaries have fallen in good places. I thought I was just gonna be married to a soldier for the rest of my life. Now I'm in the palace, this is awesome. I don't, I, I don't wager at all that that was Bathsheba's experience. I don't, I don't even for a minute think that she ever forgot that feeling she had as the king was doing his thing with her. And I'm sure she never forgot her husband either. Uriah was a good man. I reckon she would have been happily married to him. And when he died in war, and maybe she found out later how he had died and why he had died, Bathsheba would have lived with pain in her heart for the rest of her days. To add insult to injury, the child that was conceived inside of her by David's sin didn't survive. Bathsheba is an innocent victim in all of this. And if you've heard messages before that Bathsheba was standing on the rooftop bathing to get the attention of the king, that is absolute rubbish. It is absolute rubbish. David was up on the roof because he knew that his roof was higher than everyone else's and he could see women bathing. This was pornography in the day. He would go up to a higher place so he could perv. That's what's going on here. And Bathsheba innocently bathing which is where you would bathe on the rooftop to avoid being seen. David sees, David feels, David acts. And I know for some, you've had this experience. The reality of abuse and exploitation. Someone looking upon you and not seeing your character, not seeing you as a person, but using their power to exploit you and abuse you. I know, I know from pure statistics that there are many women sitting here listening to this right now who have experienced this very thing. Someone else's sin causing deep pain and suffering for you. Not because you sinned, but because someone else couldn't control themselves and they sinned against you. And what that's created for you is a deep shame. A shame that you feel is unshakable. And I reckon it was the same for Bathsheba. The third character in this history is of course David. You know, we have 10 commandments that David would have known pretty well. And in this one moment, he commits at least four wrong things against the commandments. He covets his neighbour's wife. He commits adultery, he murders and he lies. Four out of the 10 commandments in one moment. This is David, the man after God's own heart. This is David who had defeated Goliath in faith and courage. This is David who wrote like almost half of the Psalms that a lot of the songs we sang this morning are kind of based on. How does this happen? One moment, David commits this grievous sin after sin, these grievous sins after sins after sins. How does this happen? You know, one of the Psalms, Psalm 40 and verse eight says this, like we, we throw the label out hypocrite 
pretty, pretty easily in our day. Listen to this. This is Psalm 48, verse eight. Psalm 40, verse eight. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Where was that in this moment? He meant that when he wrote it. I mean, it's in scripture. This is, David meant that. So what is going on? How, how can this be? I think for us in our day, when we hear about things like this, when people do things like David did, insidious things like this, and there are, it's plen- there's plenty of it happening around the world and in the church. When we hear about stuff like this, our first instinct is to say, man, I never, I never thought that person wasn't a Christian because a Christian couldn't do things like that. Well, here is David, a man described by God himself as someone who is after his own heart doing this thing, not just committing adultery, but murdering to cover it up. I mean, that, that's insidious. This reality for David, this, this Larimer reality going on for him, the, the, the capacity to do such good and to write such good and to do such good things while also having this dark side that leads him to do things like we're reading about today. I reckon Paul talked about this as well, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this in Romans. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. Not not sin that used to live in me, but present tense. Paul, the church planting apostle, dedicated follower of Jesus, devoted to Jesus, sin living in me. Now, present tense. For I know that that good itself does not dwell in me, that is my... For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but again, here it is, it is sin living in me that does it. Here's the offensive truth. What is in David and in Paul is in all of us. It's in all of us. You may look at the story of David and go, I could never do that. But as soon as you say, I could never, you've taken one giant step towards actually doing it. Are you gonna tell me or am I gonna tell you that I'm more devoted to God and more devoted to the cause of the gospel than David or Paul? Seriously? And if for those, both of those people, both leaders of God's people, had this battle raging in them. It's true for all of us. And it's true for us even as we declare our allegiance to Jesus and worship Him with arms raised. Sin lives within us. Evil acts and acts like David did are not just the result of circumstances. Like we are some innocent player in it all and the devil did it all. The devil put it in front of me. The devil made me do it. And therefore he's to blame because I'm innocent and I'm pure and I could never do anything like that if that wasn't the case. It's not evil acts and insidious acts, not the result of upbringing and and learning how to do bad things. It's not because of lack of opportunity. It's not taught or caught. It's because for every human being, there is the seed within us for really good things 
and there is a seed within us for really bad things. That's the reality all of us live in and we are foolish to think otherwise. And that foolishness can lead us to do things that we declared we would never do. We may not and never do what David did, but the seed, you have to see, the seed is in your heart for what David did. We don't, we don't like talking about this in our day. We don't like thinking about this because you know, there, there, is, there is that reality that we're made in the image of God and capable of great things, whether, whether you come to follow Jesus or not. That, that is a reality. But all of the push now is you are a good person. You, 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 have the, you have the ability to do great things. And yeah, that's true. But we've also got to realise that we have the ability and the seed within us to do terrible things. The thing about seeds though, and I, I've, I've um, attempted again, I, I, this is a bit of an update on my veggie patch that I keep telling you about. It hasn't gone super well. I've got a few veggies. That was very, they're very small and I haven't been game to crack them open yet. My excuse is my wife arranged them in this beautiful uh, thing in a fruit bowl and I'm like, I don't even want to cook them. Like, they look too good. Anyway, I've got what I, I, I planted these from seeds and all those seeds are in Ziploc bags in my garage and they'll, nothing will happen to them unless I put them in soil, put some water on them and they get the appropriate amount of sunlight. That's the thing about seeds. They won't do anything unless you feed them and you put them in the circumstance in order for them to grow. So David had this seed in his heart. What did he do to cause it not just to grow, but to bear fruit? Coveting, adultery, murder, lying. That's the fruit of this seed. This seed that was maybe dormant in David as he battled Goliath, but comes to full maturity and fruit in this moment with Bathsheba. How did it happen? David allowed the seed to be watered and to grow and to bear fruit. Here's what David did. I don't know if you caught it in the intro. That The first verse of this passage said, it was spring, a time when kings go to war. David remained in Jerusalem. Here's the first thing that caused this seed of sin in David to grow. He wasn't where he should be. He wasn't where he should be. The second thing is David plonks himself on his rooftop, putting himself in a position to look at the women bathing on their rooftops. He was where he shouldn't be. And this double negative does not make a positive. He's not where he should be. He is where he should not be. Theologians over the years have called these two sinful things the sins of omission and the sins of commission. Sins of omission is not doing what we should be doing. Uh, the scriptures have laid out and Jesus talked about the keys to living abundant lives. Like we saved by grace, we have, we have our eternal destiny secured in Jesus, but here's, here's now how to live. Here's what we should be doing. And if we look at those things and say, this is what we should be doing and we don't do them, we're putting that seed of sin into the ground. And then if we go and do things and put ourselves in positions where we're tempted to do the things that we should not be doing, well, then there's some fertiliser put on that seed and there's some light put on it and it starts to get watered. That is what's going on for David here. He put himself in a prime position to be tempted beyond his ability to walk away. This is the fertile soil. This is the water. This is the light that took the sin the seed sin, the sin seed in David to grow, to flourish. 
to bear fruit. And that fruit, poisonous and deadly. David positioned himself to be tempted. And what is the result of that? Abuse, exploitation, betrayal, murder. Just come back, I don't don't think Bathsheba would have ever shaken that shame. I don't think she ever would have stopped mourning Uriah. I think she ever would have stopped missing him. And as she looked at David, that she would have had a struggle in her heart not to look upon David with contempt. I wonder though, if, if maybe she grew to love David. I don't know, I, you know, there's a whole psychological pathway to go down there about the way that abuse victims think they love their abusers. I just reckon she could never have shaken those feelings associated with this man, the father of her children, and how that came to be. The fruit of David's sin was those things. The fruit of David's sin was also the death of the son that was conceived in that moment. Bathsheba, Bathsheba's only words, I am pregnant. That, that son growing inside of her died, as God said it would. More than that, if you go on and read the next few chapters of 2 Samuel, you'll see that the legacy of David in this moment is carried through to his sons. One of his sons rapes someone else. His sons all conspire to fight each other and there's murder and there's lying. And so when David says that fourfold declaration on the man who took the ewe lamb, there is that fourfold punishment on David that this is gonna repeat itself in your life because of this one moment. So David positioned himself to be tempted. He succumbed to that temptation and then worked hard to cover everything up. And covering up will always be futile. Will always be futile because there is one who always sees and sees everything. Without the fourth character in this history, without the fourth person that enters the story, there is no hope for any of us. The fourth character is the prophet Nathan. But can I tell you that Nathan wasn't just a man who turned up and was a good friend who spoke truth to David. Nathan was a prophet, which means that Nathan spoke the very words of God. So I would suggest to you that it's not Nathan at work as the fourth character, it's God himself entering the story. God himself. And here's what I wanna say before I go on to how God deals with David. I just wanna quickly rush into David before we talk about Uriah and Bathsheba. And for those of you who resonated deeply with those two characters, Uriah and or Bathsheba, can you you hear in this moment of God entering the story that God's heart of justice burns for his son and his daughter? The fact that God does this is not primarily for David's redemption. God's heart burns for his daughter Bathsheba and for his son Uriah. In this moment, if you, if you resonate with Uriah or Bathsheba, know that God sees you. God sees you. God knows you and God's not happy with what's happened to you that's led you to feel the shame that you feel. 
and He wants to enter your story with grace, but also with fierce, pure, holy justice. And it will come. It will come. So when God enters the story and confronts David, it's not just about David. It's also about Uriah and Bathsheba and the shame and the betrayal and the abuse that they experienced because of this man's sin. And here's some things I want us to see in this God encountering of David though, as we think about this and remember, I am Larimer, Larimer is me. This is the first thing. God doesn't remove the seed of sin. God doesn't remove the seed of sin. In His sovereignty, in His wisdom, God allows the seed of sin to remain in each of us. Our conversion and our trust in Jesus is not a removal of that seed. It's a forgiveness, it's a redemption, but for whatever reason, God says, I'm leaving that seed in you. I'm leaving that potential for you to still do horrible things. I'm gonna leave that in you. He left it in David, he left it in Paul, and he leaves it in each of us. The seed stays within us. The seed remains. And I wanna double back for a second as as we do hear about people who we think, how could they have done this? I'm I'm surprised. I thought they were actually a Christian. Well, I, I would say without wanting to defend their actions, they can still be a Christian. They can still be saved by the blood of Jesus. For whatever reason, God allows that seed to remain in them and they've put themselves in the situation for the seed sin, the sin seed to grow, to flourish and to bear fruit. But you can be saved by the blood of Jesus and still do these horrible things because the seed remains in each of us. And as I said before, and hat tip to Tim Keller who said this, the moment we think that we are sure that we could never do anything that bad is taking a giant step towards actually doing it. The fact that the seed of sin remains in us should cause us to go, well, I wanna make sure that I do not put that seed in a position to grow, flourish and bear fruit. The second thing, God exposes the fruit of that seed graciously and justly. Graciously and justly. The thing, about, the thing that's interesting about David as king, so David in his role as king was also judge. So when Nathan comes to him, David, David's sitting on his throne and I assume he's probably stewing over what's just happened. Like this, he, I don't think he's going, phew, got away with that one. I think he's like, oh man, like he had, a, he had the spirit in him. So he, he would have been convicted and there would have been a whole lot of thoughts running through his mind about what had just happened. And then Nathan comes in and David's first reaction when Nathan tells him this story about the ewe lamb being taken, David goes into judge mode. He thinks Nathan's telling him a true story, that this has actually happened and he's come to David to give his judgment. And so what David does is he, he says one of his judgments is, is right, it's actually in Levitical law that someone who's done what this guy has done is to repay the man he stole from four times over, fourfold. And he says that. But the first thing he says is, this man should die. And you won't find that in Levitical law. Someone who steals a lamb from someone else should not die. What is going on for David here? I'll tell you what it is. It's a guilty conscience. The people who I get most angry and frustrated with and I, and I feel that anger towards are people who are doing the stuff that I hate seeing in myself. 
come and take a drive with me and if I like you and I feel vulnerable enough, you'll see I get most frustrated when people drive like I hate myself driving. And there's a whole lot of other stuff as well that goes along with that. We get the most frustrated and angry and resentful at people who are doing the very thing that we hate in ourselves. And so David, because of this guilty conscience, he rages, this man should die. Here's the thing though, the way that Nathan approaches David, the way that God approaches David, and I wanna suggest the way that Jesus approaches us is very clever. It's very, I learned a new word this week, it's very shrewd, it's very precise, it's very intelligent, and it's very loving. The way that Nathan approaches David is not like the way that we would approach someone who we thinks need to confess. The way that Nathan approaches, the way that God approaches David leads to conviction and conversion, not condemnation. The way that, it, the way that David is led is he's persuaded to confess. He's not hammered and defensive. He's persuaded by grace. This parable that Nathan tells David produces in David this godly repentance and that stinging word, you are that man. Rather than coming in and going, God saw what you did with Bathsheba and Uriah, you dirty, filthy sinner, you need to confess. Doesn't that sound a bit like some in the church, the way we speak to the world? Maybe it's written on a board, waving it in people's faces. It's not the way that Jesus does it. It's not the way that God does it through Nathan. There's a parable. And God is trying to trap David with conviction and grace. God doesn't allow David to get defensive. When someone comes at me like that, I'm not, my first inclination is not conviction and confession, it is defence. How dare you? How dare you presume to know anything about me? Back off. God's approach to David is very clever, very loving, very gracious. Robert Alter, an expert in Hebrew says this. This has some big words in it. I had to read it a few times to understand it. That won't be the case for you, it's a good quote. Nathan, and remember Nathan is the prophet of God, may be counting on the possibility that the obverse side of a guilty conscience in a man like David is the anxious desire to do the right thing. As king, his first obligation is to protect his subjects and to dispense justice, especially to the disadvantaged. In the affair of Bathsheba and Uriah, he has done precisely the opposite. Now, as he listens to Nathan's tale, David's compensatory zeal to be a champion of justice overrides any awareness he might have of the evident artifice of the story. He thinks this is a real story and he rages because he sees in this story what his guilty conscience is saying to him, you've done this exact thing. And when Nathan says, you are the man, David is convicted and he confesses. That's the third thing. God leads David to confession. God positions David for heartfelt and repentant confession. And this is exactly what David does. Some of, some of the rest of the story, 2 Samuel chapter 12, a few verses after the last one I read after Nathan says, you are this man. Verse 13 says, 
David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses. There is confession. David wrote a whole psalm about this that many of you will know. Psalm 51, I'm gonna read it later. But it is, again, this song of lament and this song of desperation and throwing himself on the mercy and love of God. The weed of sin that has grown, flourished and come to full fruit is pulled out of David's heart through confession. What's interesting is how God replies through Nathan to David. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. From tragedy to tragedy. And can I say as a side note, I know many of you as parents and even right now, you've suffered the pain of a lost child. Can I I say before I say any more about this story, that is not God punishing you. What you'll hear in a minute is the punishment that is due us for this seed of sin that's in us is fully on Jesus. And you need to hear that before I tell you the rest of this story because I would hate for you to think that the reason you lost a child that was growing inside of you was because God was punishing you. Not the case. But what's happening here pre-Jesus David's son conceived with Bathsheba dies after a very short life. More than that, as I said before, the legacy of David's sin continues through his sons. And in fact, four of his sons, this fourfold idea that David demanded of this man who had stolen the ewe lamb, the fourfold consequence happened in David's sons. Four of his sons died. Here we see the immediate consequence and punishment for David's sin. David's confession does not set aside the wages of sin. What God does with the wages of David's sin is he apportions it elsewhere. David did not die, but the wages of sin is death and the sin of David needed to go elsewhere. And you talk about Bathsheba grieving for the rest of her life. David lived with this for the rest of his life, that his sin had caused his sons to die. This is the thing about sin in our hearts. Again, it's an uncomfortable truth, but the sin that is in each of us calls for death. This walking away from the one who gives life obviously and logically results in death and that's what sin does in us and in order to come back to God in order to be restored to God something has to happen with our sin for David what happened with his sin was the death of his sons it's in this light that when this starts to stir in our hearts I can see the dark side of me I can see the seed of sin in my heart I can see the reality of that growing I've experienced the reality of when I put it in under the right conditions this sin seed will grow and flourish and produce fruit something needs to happen and our our, our soul cries out for a saviour what will I do with this sin that is at work within me how do I deal with this how do I how do I Get rid of it. How do I stop it from taking a hold of me? We cry out for a saviour and we dread the punishment that we get if it's not dealt with. This is where 
Jesus comes in. This is where the good news is just that. Good news. God comes to David through Nathan with a parable. And what I find really fascinating is this completely in line with the character and strategy of Jesus. Jesus often spoke in parables when he was here. And what his parables would do is set the listeners up in a trap that would trap them with no other option but to fall on the grace of God. It was a beautiful trap. It was not a sinister trap. It was not an insidious trap. It was a trap of love and grace trying to get us to see that without dealing with our sin and without having a saviour and without crying out to God, we are hopeless. We despair. There is no future. Jesus came to say, I am the one and through my death on the cross, your punishment will not fall upon your children anymore. It will fall upon me. It will not fall upon you anymore. It will fall upon me. Here I am on the cross, taking the punishment, the death that humanity deserved, that anyone who throws themselves on Jesus, their sin is gone. Their sin is dealt with every time. You could leave this place if you trust in Jesus. You could put yourself in that position for the sin seed to flourish, grow and bear fruit. I pray you don't, but if you did, but you still trust Jesus, that sin is removed as far as you, as the east, from you as the east is from the west. That's what Jesus has done. Jesus dies in our place. David's sin demanded death. Our sin demands death. Jesus dies our death. It is good news. It is good news. David, when he's confronted by Nathan, he has this choice to make, as do all of us. He has this choice to make. Okay, what do I do next? Here's my choices, broadly speaking. One choice is to go, okay, Nathan, I see I've done the wrong thing. I'm gonna make up for it. I'm gonna be better. I'm gonna do better. This is not gonna happen again. I'm not gonna be tempted. I'm gonna stay on my floor of my palace. I'm not gonna go up to the roof again. I'm gonna make it right with Bathsheba. I'm gonna, I'm gonna repent every day. I'm gonna do all the right things so that God will be happy with me. That's one choice. The other choice, that, that is a horrible choice, by the way. The other choice is the choice that he makes. He throws himself, absolutely throws himself on the grace and mercy of God. I am a sinner, I have sinned against you, please. And you see in Psalm 51, it's this begging of God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Surely I was sinful at birth. I am not holy, I am not good. God, be gracious to me. That is the path to the gospel. That is the path to religion. That is the path to freedom. That is the path to religious bondage. Choose this path today. Throw yourself on the grace and mercy of Jesus. We live in a different time to David. David longed for this Saviour. We have Him. We have Him. He's Jesus. It's Jesus. I have to think about how we're responding this morning to this good news. How we're responding to this story of David and Bathsheba. And I wanna suggest there are three ways that you can respond this morning that relate to what we've worked through as we've looked at this history. The first response is for those of you who sit here today and you carry a shame because of someone else's sin. There is a shame in your heart. There is a shame that you carry. You, you hide it. 
you, you bury it deep, but there is a shame in you that is there because, not because of your sin, but because of someone else's sin. What I want you to hear today and what I would love for you to respond to is God sees your shame. God sees what happened. God doesn't love you any less. God couldn't love you anymore. And justice and righteousness will come for you. God is a God of justice and a God of righteousness and one day it will come. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die to forgive us of our sins, he died to cover our shame. And whether you're a sinner or sinned against and the shame that you feel because of both of those things, Jesus wants to cover your shame. And so I would love for you to respond quietly in your own heart today and just again say to God, I carry this shame because of the sin of someone else. God, would you cover my shame today? The second response is for those of you who are positioning yourself for temptation. You know it, you know it. You, you aren't where you should be and you are where you shouldn't be. And you're, you, you keep battling with this seed because you keep putting yourselves in context to let it grow, flourish and bear fruit. Here's a quote from an old Puritan preacher that I think is really a good one that is straight on the mark, is frank, that you need to hear today. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Kill it. This is not complicated. Don't put yourself in a position to be tempted. Don't go to your computer at midnight, flick it on and start getting on websites. If you, if you start having sexual fantasies or fantasies of revenge and, 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 and you have jealousy and envy, stop, consciously say, God, I'm backing out of this. This is, this is causing the seed in me to flourish and I want it to stop. Holy Spirit, stop. Help me to go somewhere else and do something else. Help me walk in obedience to you. Back out of the situations in which you feel tempted. When you see that secret, kill the fruit. It's poisonous. It will kill you. Destroy it. Destroy it. There's a, there's a passage in Ephesians 5 that Paul, he, he talks about this very thing. For you were once in darkness but now you are in the light of the Lord. Live as children of light for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said and hear it today. If you are putting yourself in the position to be tempted here the voice of Jesus saying to you, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. My challenge to you is if you're in this place right now, can I tell you, you're totally at home among everyone sitting around you because we all have to be careful of this. But here's, here's my challenge, here's my response to you is tell somebody, tell somebody. I keep finding myself in this place of temptation. I need to back out, can you help me? Can, can I text you when it's happening and can you pray for me? That's, that's what bringing it into the light looks like. Bringing it into the light. Nothing, because there's nothing to be ashamed of because Jesus has died for your sin. There's no shame. Let the light shine. Tell somebody. Have that accountability. The third thing, the third way to respond is to confess your sins. Confess your sins. 
if that seed has grown, flourished and fruited in your life, you can weed it out. Actually, you can't weed it out, but Jesus can weed it out for you if you ask him. The way to weed it out is confession. Confession with your mouth. God, this is what I did. Like David did, I've sinned against the Lord. This is what I did. This is what I've done. I was where I shouldn't be. I wasn't where I should be. This is what I did. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And he will. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will confess, he will, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no fear in this because there is no condemnation. Your punishment is dealt with by your Saviour. This is the funny thing about forgiveness. It is certain. You don't have to wonder if because Jesus has died. It's happened in history. I have died for your sin. So when you confess it, you can know that it is forgiven for sure, for certain. You don't need to hide it anymore. You don't need to fear the condemnation. This, there is no condemnation. This fear that you have to confess of what people will think, of what God will think of you, it, it, there's just no need for it because perfect love drives that fear out. And He loves you. The reason He wants to forgive you is because He loves you desperately. If you're uncertain that He loves you, you need look no further than the cross where Jesus said, this is how much I love you. So James says to us, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. It's in the Bible. It's what we should do. So whichever one of those three responses fits for you this morning. I'd love to give a bit of time just for you to respond quietly on your own. This is not an altar call. Beck's gonna sing a song over us in a minute. And I wanna give you space to speak to Jesus. Whether you carry the shame, whether you're finding yourself tempted or whether the sin seed has come to full fruit and you wanna confess, this is a moment to have between you and Jesus. Let me set this up with reading some of Psalm 51. Why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes. As you hear these words of David that he wrote as he thought about what he had just done that we've read about this morning. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation 
and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know. 